let me encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2 tonight. I thought this would be a good follow-up to what we saw in Proverbs 24 on Sunday. So Acts 2, 41 through 47. And those of you who have been here uh, as long as I have or longer, which is many of you, um, will know that this is at least the tenth time that I've either taught or preached from this passage. Now, six of those were in a six-part series. But nonetheless, we've come back to this passage again and again and again. And I taught from this passage several times before I ever came here, including, if my memory serves me correct, the very first time when I had a chance to teach a lesson that I prepared myself um, that wasn't out of like a lesson book. It was from this passage in our church in the first year of seminary. And tonight we come to it again. And you should know that before we get to verse 41, what is happening in the first two chapters of Acts is that Jesus has risen and appeared to his disciples. And then in chapter 1, he has ascended into heaven and left them with a commission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be his witnesses. And after having done that, he's told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in power. And they stayed in Jerusalem and prayed and studied and fellowshiped together and waited. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power so that a crowd was drawn to see what was happening among these disciples. And Peter stood up and preached the gospel to them from the book of Psalms, actually. And when he finished his sermon there in chapter 2, verse 37, the people were pierced to the heart and said, what shall we do? And Peter told them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then we come to verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, you know how formative this passage has been in my life and how often we've come to it again and again. God, I think it's that important that we see uh, this initial blueprint for the church. God, in all her glory and in all her beauty. And we pray now simply that you would urge us to see an example here and to have hungry hearts to be what these people were and to cry out that you would bless us the way you blessed them. So do that for us. Teach us, help us, encourage us, make us hungry now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sunday, towards the very end of the sermon, I said to you that our ability to reach our community for Jesus, it seems to me, is directly proportional to how well our souls are doing. In other words, we need to be sharing the gospel with our mouths, but our ability to actually be successful in that is directly proportional 
to how we are doing in our souls, how well the vineyards of our souls are being weeded and fertilized and watered and so on. And I meant that as a personal challenge to each one of us that you would tend to your vineyard, as it were, singular, but I also meant it as a corporate challenge to us as a church, that our church in general, our corporate ability to reach our community for Jesus is directly proportional to how we're doing together, to whether or not we are the kind of church that we need to be, that we could be, that we should be. And I turn to Acts 2 tonight to demonstrate that assertion, namely that our ability to reach our community is directly proportional to whether or not our souls individually and corporately are what we should be. I think Acts 2 demonstrates just what I was saying towards the end of the sermon. And to show you that just initially, I want you to look at the very last sentence there in verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, that's not just there sort of as a footnote tacked on to the end of what was an otherwise really interesting story about the church. And now here's another little sentence about evangelism. Now, I think he he puts that at the end of this long description of what the church is like because we are meant to see verse 47b, the salvation of people day by day, as a corollary of all that has gone before in verses 41 through 47. In other words, God is saying to us, This is the kind of church that reaches people. The church of verses 41 through 47a is the kind of church that the Lord sees fit to bless with numerous people coming into the kingdom by the ministry of that church. They did all these things. They were all these things. They dedicated themselves to all these things. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved because of their commitments in verse 42 and their sacrifices for one another in verse 45 and their fellowship that they enjoyed in verse 46. Because of these things, they had favor with all the people, verse 47a, and because they had favor with all the people, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those from the people who were being saved. So people were attracted to this church, we're being told here, because they were serious about their faith in a way that made a difference every single day in their lives and in their lives together. And more importantly than that, really, whether we had verse 47b or not, more importantly is that God was pleased with them. It was the Lord who added to their number day by day so that people weren't being saved just because the church was attractive, but because God was pouring out his divine blessing upon them. God was pleased with the way that they were conducting themselves, the way they were doing life together as a church. And that's even more crucial. In other words, we should go hard after God in commitment to the things of God and in sacrifice for one another and in fellowship together, not just because people might be saved if we're the kind of church we ought to be, but mainly because doing these things, living this way, pleases God. God is pleased when His church is all that she should be. And so I think it's no accident that Luke records for us the heartbeat of the church in Jerusalem. This passage is here for our admiration and for our imitation. And I just want to commend it to you again tonight for both of those purposes, that you admire this church and that God would make you hungry to imitate this church. And I should say that in many ways, and we'll say this as we go along, we are seeing 
some of these things happening. So this isn't a sermon to say we're not at all like this church and everything's falling apart, but we need to just totally turn around and go 180 degrees in the other direction. No, we're going to see that God is blessing us to be some of these things. I've watched verse 42 come to life in a number of you. I've watched verse 45 being applied in our midst. I've seen real fellowship happening and real sacrifice for one another happening and real prayer happening. But I come to this passage tonight for the same reason I came to the passage on Sunday morning, namely because it seems to me that though these things are happening, it's a percentage. In other words, they're not happening across the board in our congregation. There's a percentage, and I know I'm speaking to the choir because the percentage is largely made up of the people who are here in this room and on Wednesday nights. But we need to pray that our congregation as a whole becomes this. And I think we would all say, even though we're here tonight and perhaps um, we've been seeing God doing these things in our lives as well, I think we would all say that we live out these things, but sometimes we do it in fits and starts. And some of you know what it is for your spiritual life to be up and down like a sine curve. And so what I want to say to you tonight is, or what I want to do for you tonight is to put this Jerusalem church in front of you again, to sort of dangle the carrot, as it were, and pray that God makes you hungry to be this kind of church and makes you hungry not only for yourself to be consistently seeking God with all of your heart, but hungry for the rest of our congregation, that we would be all in this together. And so I just want to point out six things to you from this passage. There are six things we've noted before, and we'll spend three or four minutes on each of them. I hope that each one will be a challenge and an encouragement to you. First, I want you to see from verse 41 that this Jerusalem church had a common faith. A common faith. (coughs) So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And then they were continually devoting themselves to these various things. But they, they believed first. They believed the same thing together first before they did the same things together. In other words, verses 41 and 42 are side by side and in the order they're in so that we'll see that what happens in verses 42 and following is a result of what happens in verse 41. The people were committed They sacrificed for one another. They had fellowship with one another because they were all on the same page in the faith in verse 41. And that's instructive in a couple of different ways. First, it's a reminder, isn't it, that we're saved by grace through faith and not as a result of works. In other words, these people were not saved because they devoted themselves, verse 42, to the Bible and prayer and the gospel and the church. No, that would be the place verse 42 before verse 41. But the order is actually the other way around, isn't it? The reason they devoted themselves to the Bible and to prayer and to the gospel and to the church is because they had already been saved by faith in Jesus, by receiving the word that Peter had preached that day. So this is just a reminder of the order things go. We are saved by faith, which leads to good works, rather than being saved by good works themselves. But second, and more to the point tonight, the ordering of verses 41 and 42 is helpful Because Luke, the author of this passage, wants us to see that devotion to the scriptures and to prayer and to the gospel and to the church are the normal 
outflow of a heart that has received the message, that has believed the gospel. These things, these verses 42 through 47, are the normal outflow of a life that's received the gospel. Not always at the same pace, not always to the same degree, but the things that we're going to be seeing tonight are normal for the Christian. And then that should pose a a frightening possibility, right? If a person never experiences a sense of awe at the things of God, verse 43, or if a person rarely has a desire to serve God's people and to give to God's people, verse 45, if a person is lukewarm about prayer and about the scriptures and about fellowship with other Christians, verse 42, what are the chances that they never actually believed Peter's word? They never actually received the gospel. They never actually, verse 37, were pierced to the heart so that they had to cry out, I'm doomed. What must I do to be saved? So this is a matter of no little consequence, and it's a matter of prayer for our congregation that people would be sure that they have received the message that Peter is preaching, and therefore their lives are changed. We need to pray that when we see not just in our congregation, but just people in general who claim Christ but don't seem to care for his church or care for his word or care for the people that are around them, something's wrong. And it may well be that they never received his word. So they had a common faith. They had a common belief. They were all committed believers in Jesus. But then secondly, they had a common devotion. Verse 42, common devotion. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We don't have time to look at each one of those four things individually. I I do have some sermons that I'm going to put on the front table where we did look at them individually if you'd like to study more. But for now, let me just summarize what's being said here to put it in the language that we would use. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is what we have as the scriptures, right? They devoted themselves to the Bible. And to fellowship. Now he wasn't talking about third Sunday night of the month where everybody got together for a potluck, although that would be included. But when he talks about fellowship here, he's saying they devoted themselves to doing life together. All of life. These people were always, the phrase we've used is helpfully tangled up in one another's lives. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper. And We've said this before, by devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper, what they were really doing is saying we're devoted to the gospel message of Christ crucified for sinners. They were devoted to sharing that out in the community. They were devoted to that as their motive for their own Christian living. They were devoted to that as their comfort, their only hope. It was everything to them, this gospel. You see that as you read the book of Acts and as you read the epistles. It always comes back to the gospel of Jesus. And they were devoted to prayer to prayer. And again, more on those things in this sermon that I'll put on the front table. But what I want you to notice, more than the four individual things, is I want you to notice the corporate nature of these commitments that they were making. In other words, when we're told that they were committed to the Bible and to fellowship and to the gospel and to prayer, Luke is not here so much talking about their personal Bible reading or their personal evangelism or their personal prayer. Important as those things are, to believers. But what he's talking about here in Acts 2.42, this is a description of how the church was committed to doing these things together. And you'll see that the rest of this passage 
is about what they did together. The New Testament places far less emphasis on the individual than we sometimes do in our Western world. And this passage is all about the group, the group's Bible study, the group's prayer, the group's evangelism, the group's fellowship, and so on. And I know I'm preaching to the choir in what I'm about to say, but it needs to be said so that we can pray and so that some of us may be challenged ourselves as well. This passage is about how the church did all these things together. But in our church, only about a third to a half of our congregation is consistently doing life together as it's described here outside of 11 o'clock on Sundays. Does that make sense? These people, it doesn't say they were weekly devoting themselves, but continually devoting themselves to the Bible and the prayer and the gospel and fellowship. And in our congregation, outside of that one hour on Sunday morning, most of the time when you look at Wednesday nights, or prayer meetings, or the various chances we have to serve together, or even at Sunday school to to a lesser extent, but still true there, there's generally a core group of about 25 or 30 people that can be expected to be there, including children. And that's good. I'm glad there's 25 or 30 people here tonight. But what that means is that we're only at about a third to a half of the strength that we might be at if we were all together, like this church seemed to be all together. And I know you may say, well, have you visited any other churches? I mean, most churches have far less people on Wednesday nights and at prayer meeting and so on and so forth. And that's true. But that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it normal or biblical. It just means that we've kind of settled into a routine of having the committed Christians and then the other Christians. And that's not the way it was in the New Testament. But because these people were together, great things happen. And it's a little wonder when most churches in America are at a third or half of their strength any other time but Sunday morning that we don't see the Lord adding to numbers day by day those who are being saved. And what we need to do is not complain or not sort of look down our nose because we were the ones who were here on Wednesday night. What we need to do is we need to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our church so that we would all be together numerous times throughout the week so that these meetings would be full and the prayer meetings would be full and the Sunday school classes would be full of people ready to discuss God's word and to help apply it to one another's lives. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and do something that's not normal in our culture but that was normal in Acts chapter 2. They had a common devotion all together. Thirdly, they had a common awe or a common amazement in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now this is a verse that we would probably be tempted to just breeze past, right? Because we don't have apostles, for one thing, and we're not seeing the same sorts of wonders and signs usually that they saw. So we're tempted perhaps to say, well, this was an un, a time of unusual, miraculous activity. God was working in his apostles in ways that is not normative for most of the church's history. And I think that's true. God was working in ways that were unusual in order to confirm that the message these men were preaching was a heavenly message. That's why the miracles are called signs 
there in verse 43. God was coming in back of them. He wasn't just doing miracles because he wanted to do miracles or because someone was sick. He was doing miracles in order to say, Peter is from me. And Paul is sent from me. And John is sent from me. Listen to what they say. So the signs were to get people to listen to the word. So it was unusual. But I would just ask, are we not in an era in world history where we could use God coming and doing amazing things behind us so that people would listen to the message? I think we are. We're in a day when the Bible is seen by most people around us as a fairy tale. And we're in a day where churches most of the time are written off out of hand and are made fun of on the television. And so when we go to share with people, sometimes it's very difficult for them to listen to us. That's not to diminish the power of God's word. It's simply to say that what if we prayed that God would do amazing things in answer to our prayers in order so that people would see the power of God and listen to his servants like happened in the book of Acts. Not to replace God's word, but to gain a hearing for God's word. God still does miracles, doesn't he? God still answers large, seemingly out-of-the-box prayers. And if he does, then surely we ought to be asking him to do, as he says, great and mighty things which we know not. In other words, we ought to pray for people who are sick or pray for certain situations, not because, well, I know I'm supposed to pray for that. I mean, somebody asked me to pray, and that's what we Christians do. We pray for somebody who's sick. But to really pray in faith and to really say, God, if you would do this, perhaps, perhaps this would awaken someone's heart, open someone's eyes to listen to what I've been trying to tell them all this time. I think we ought to then, praying those kind of prayers, live with a constant sense of awe at the way God answers, and at the power of God, just like these Christians were. One of the most attractive things to unbelievers, it seems to me, is when they are with God's people, whether it be in someone's home or in a church building or wherever it may be, and they are able to sense that God is with these people. They may not know that that's what it is yet. They may not even decide yet that they like the fact that God is with these people. But they simply know God is with these people. God, someone is out there hearing their prayers. Something's happening here. I remember reading the story uh, of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welsh preacher who's mainly known for his ministry in London. But before he pastored in London, he pastored in a little tiny town on the coast of South Wales um, in a, a small church that experienced a time of revival and grew into quite a large church for that part of the world. But one of the stories of that time was that there was a fortune teller in this Welsh town. Uh, And I'm not talking about somebody who just made things up to make money, but somebody who really was apparently in touch with demonic forces. And at some point, for some reason, she walked into the church service on a Sunday evening. And um, she later would say, I sensed something when I came among those people. It was kind of like the power that I sense when I'm doing my demonic activity, only it was clean power. In other words, being among God's people as they prayed and as the word was preached, she could sense that God was with these people. And I think that happens so often in corporate seasons of prayer 
where God's people are calling out upon Him to do great and mighty things and trusting Him, and then answers come and praises are shared. And if unbelievers are seeing that or hearing about that, there's something that's strangely attractive about that. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you have seen specific answers to prayer because of some prayer request that you brought on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning to church? Anybody? I'm sure numbers of you have. If not here, somewhere else, you've seen God answer prayers. And my question, again, going back to the the whole togetherness that is here, is what if 70 people were gathered praying that way instead of just 25? What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Everyone would keep feeling a sense of awe. And God would be doing amazing things if His people were all together of one mind asking Him to do mighty things as an attestation that His Word is true and that He is God. So they had a common awe that we would do well to have also. Fourthly, they had common property. They shared common property, verses 44 through 45. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This was a church that made sure that no one in their midst was left without their needs being met. And I have to say that under this heading... This church is far ahead of most any church that I have been around. I thought about it today, and I can't count the number of times that I've watched different ones of you meet needs of other church members, whether it be through anonymous financial gifts or through the Benevolence Fund or through showers that are thrown or through meals that are taken, whatever it may be. And we should know that those things please the Lord. It's here for our imitation. And as you imitate those things, God is pleased. And I'm encouraged as I watch that happening. But I want to say to you, as Paul said twice to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, excel still more. In other words, the Thessalonians were doing well and Paul says, you're doing great. Now keep going and excel still more. Don't rest on your past accomplishments. In other words, don't take the pat on the back that I just gave you so seriously that you say, whew, we did it. But keep going. Don't forget. Don't forget when you're thinking about buying that new television or that new outfit or that new gadget for your garage. Don't forget that there are people in our congregation right now who are unemployed and who could really use your help. Don't forget that there are people in our congregation, several of them who are on fixed incomes, and can't afford what some of us can afford. Don't forget that our church budget decreased by 20% this year because so many people moved away last year and we're still not meeting the budget. So we're doing well in this area, but let's excel still more. Let's keep doing verses 44 and 45 like this church was doing them. Then fifthly, they ate at common tables common tables, verses 46 and 47a. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
There are a number of things to point out here. First, in verse 46a, we're reminded again that the Jerusalem church members were constantly praying and worshiping together. Every day, it says, groups were meeting in the temple. They were going there to worship. But the main point that I want to make now is from verse 46b, (coughs) this emphasis on how they ate together. Did you ever realize that eating together could be so significant? It's right here in the same list with studying the Bible and praying and doing miracles and being generous with your money. Isn't that interesting? Eating together is right in the middle of that list. It's important. And we'll see why as we read on. Notice three things about these meals that they were eating. The first is, again, that this wasn't simply a third Sunday evening fellowship meal. That's just sort of the... the, the taste to to get everybody together and to want to do it more and more and more on your own. But these meals were happening day by day, verse 46, and from house to house. So people were were getting together constantly in this church. Secondly, I want you to notice that it's not so much that these meals were planned out by the church leadership. That can be helpful, but I don't think that's what was happening here. It says that they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In other words, it wasn't because it was programmed as part of the church, but simply these people said, we want to be together. We'll figure it out. And that's a good thing. And thirdly, I want you to notice that it wasn't simply about eating either. We like eating, and sweet tea is good. We had some tonight. But that wasn't mainly what they were about. They were taking their meals together, and while they were doing so, verse 47, they were praising God. They got together because they wanted to be with the Lord's people and speak about the Lord's goodness to them. What they were learning as they studied the Bible, the prayers that God had answered for them, the same kinds of things that we share here on Wednesday nights, they were sharing over their meals as well. That's why these meals ranked up there with the miracles. It's not that the food was equivalent with the miracles, but the worship and the praise and the fellowship that was happening over the food was just as good as the powerful things that God was doing through the apostles. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? That the fellowship of God's people over a meal, sharing God's word together and praising God together, could be in the same list with all these miracles and Bible studies and prayer meetings. It's important. So let me just ask you, do you ever have meals like this? Have you been in the home of any church folks lately or had them in your home? Remember how important this is. Remember that Luke places it in the same list with all these other great things. And if you've ever had a meal like the meals that are being described in verses 46 and 47, you know why it's in this list. Because there's nothing better than being with God's people. If you're really God's people and you're gathered together, praising God together, whether it's over a meal or just in a prayer time of a few people or wherever it is, there's nothing better than being with God's people and being able to talk about the things of God. So, of course, it's on the list here. And then notice that along with these praise meals, the Jerusalem church was experiencing favor with all the people. It's kind of kind of listed as a tag-on to the meals and the praising that was going on at the meals. They were experiencing favor with all the people. Now, why does, he, why does he put that there? In other words, what does favor with all the people have to do with fellowship meals? How do those two things connect? 
We're not given any indication that the unbelievers were there at these different meals, though it's good to have unbelievers in your home. We're not given any indication that that's what was going on here. They were eating together. The Christians were eating together. And somehow, at the same time, the people from the outside were watching and saying, I really like these people. How did that happen? How did the Christians taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart and praising God lead to unbelievers being attracted to the church? Well, there must have been something eye-catching about these get-togethers. There must have been something eye-catching about the way these Christians love being together. Something attractive about the way the church folks love one another. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? By this... All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's being played out here. They loved being together and people noticed it. And they were attracted by it. And they showed favor toward the Christians. And what what Luke is saying here is that when the church is really the church, the beautiful, glorious church that God has called her to be, when the church is the Acts 2 kind of people of God, People are strangely attracted to her and to her bridegroom. So they were sharing a common table together, and that brings us to the last heading, common results. They were experiencing common results in the last half of verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Common results. Now I'm using the word common this time in a little different sense. We've been using the word common in the sense of shared, a shared table, shared property, and so on. But now I'm using the word common in the sense of ordinary. In other words, the church in Jerusalem saw so many people come to Jesus that it became ordinary. It became commonplace for people to be saved. Day by day, people were being saved. Now that should get our attention, shouldn't it? Certainly, we would love to be a part of a church like that, wouldn't we? That's what I've been trying to say. Surely, we would love to be like the Jerusalem church, to be what they were and to see God work in the ways that he worked in their midst. Surely, we would want to be that. I hope you would. But someone may point out, well, what was common in Jerusalem is not really often common in other churches. Most churches don't see people day by day being saved. And that's true. For instance, the church in Colossae met. It was such a small church that it could meet in someone's home. And the church in Jerusalem, when you get over to Acts chapter 8, is no longer experiencing favor, but they're experiencing forced exile. So the blessing of God in these unusual ways didn't stay with them forever. It wasn't always common for people to be saved day by day in Jerusalem. So it is true that what was common in Jerusalem in those early days is quite uncommon in the rest of church history, though not unheard of. This was an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think you'll agree. 3,000 saved in one day. And then as we read on in Acts, we find out that these who are being saved day by day added up to another 2,000 in the months that were ahead. And there have been thousands and thousands of faithful churches since then that have not experienced near that kind of growth. So what are we to do with this? We should long for it. 
but we know it doesn't always happen this way, even among faithful churches. What do we do with this? Well, let me read you a quote from a man named Tim Keller. Some of you will have heard of him. I just was sent this from another pastor today. Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan. Uh, it's a, a highly successful, evangelistic, solid, biblical church. They have had thousands of people come into their congregation over the 20 years that the church has existed. They've planted two to three dozen other churches in the Northeast and in major cities all across the country. And here's what he says about the blessing that has come about, the unusual outpouring of the Spirit that's come about there at Redeemer Church in Manhattan. Using surfing terms. I'm not sure if he's a surfer, but that's the terms he uses. He says about about the early days of the church, we paddled out on our board and a wave came in. A wave came in. He says, you can do all the same paddling and standing, and then if the wave doesn't come in, there's no surfing. We could have easily come here, done everything that we have done, and have very, very little to show for it. I know other people who have been every bit as faithful, if not more faithful than me, and do not have anything like the same amount of success for only reasons that God in his sovereignty would know. He says, we didn't do anything special. We just paddled out. We just did what we knew to do. And, and a wave came in. The Holy Spirit came and did unusual things. And I think that's how we could describe what happened in the church in Jerusalem. They had no idea. The apostles, when they were meeting behind closed doors and they were just uh, a few dozen people and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, they had no idea the size of wave that the Holy Spirit was about to send upon them. But like Redeemer Church in New York, they paddled out into the water. And that's the important thing. They paddled out. They, in other words, committed to and sacrificed for this beautiful thing called the church. They gave their lives to their church. And in God's mercy and in God's sovereignty, an enormous wave came in. And what I want to say to you tonight is, who's to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't have another wave like that pent up somewhere in His heavenly storehouses waiting for a church like this one to paddle out? Waiting for a church like this one to be the church, to be the Acts 2 church in all of her beauty and in all of her glory. Waiting for a church that will commit to one another and sacrifice for one another 100%. Waiting for a church that is marked by fervent corporate prayer. Waiting for a church that is truly across the board, hungry for God's word. Waiting for a church that is this in love with Jesus so that he can send the wave. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord cause that to be, not just verse 47, but all of it to be that Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church.